Amen. Well, good morning. You have to do it one more time, obviously. Good morning. Hey, that's, I'll take it. Um, so Paul gave me a great introduction. Uh, I am Brett Callen. I'm the Director of Worship Arts. I have been here for six years, but this is the first time that I've ever spoken in chapel, so clearly Paul was getting desperate. But in seriousness, I know that both Paul and our previous guest speaker, Jeanette, have mentioned that 2020, not a great year so far, pretty garbage. Um, it doesn't even make my top 30, and I'm only 31. So, and not to belabor the point, but wouldn't it be great if we could just escape this year? Wouldn't it be great if we could just leave it? And we're certainly made to feel like we can, right? We have access to so many distractions. Like for a few bucks a month, we can stream as much music as we want to, virtually all the music that's been recorded over the past 80 years or so. Oh, and we're living through the greatest era of prestige television that there's ever been. And there are dozens of movies that are released on Netflix and Hulu, like literally every week. And we can stream the musical Hamilton whenever we want to, which for me is maybe one of the best things about 2020 so far. I don't know about you. And so why wouldn't we want to escape when, at the moment, the world feels very difficult to live in and very easy to escape from? And so this morning, I'd like to unravel the idea of escapism, the ways in which we escape. And if I were to offer a broad explanation of that idea, I'd say that escapism is any time we disengage significantly from our real-life responsibilities. And we all do this. It's okay to do this. Everyone needs a break sometimes. Every psychologist is going to tell you this. And we see this, too, in Scripture. At the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it's the creation account, right? And we read that God spends six days working and creating the universe, the world, and then on the seventh day, he rests. Just a little bit later in Exodus 34, as God is making a new covenant with the Israelites, he's talking to Moses, and he says, six days you shall work, and on the seventh you shall rest. Even Jesus needed rest. We see one example of this in chapter 14 of Matthew's gospel account. And in that story, we read that Jesus has just miraculously fed thousands of people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Then he walks up a mountain by himself so that he can rest and pray. Rest is not bad. Rest is good and necessary and healthy and biblical. And sometimes a brief escape from reality is exactly what our bodies and minds need. But if you're like me, you know from experience it's so easy to use our times of rest in ways that are meaningless at best and destructive at worst. We, it's easy to escape into those activities that are meaningless at best and destructive at worst. And so the question for us today is, how can we rest faithfully without engaging in meaningless or destructive escapism? How can we rest faithfully without engaging in meaningless and destructive escapism? And so my answer is this today. When we do use our times of rest to escape, we should then be able to re-enter the world with a better understanding of ourselves, of those around us, and of our relationship to God, our creator. If we're using those ways to escape appropriately, it should yield some type of fruit, right? And this isn't an assessment that's always easy to make. There's no clear-cut process for knowing, can I, is, this, is this resting faithfully? Is this productive? But if our times of rest don't produce 
don't provide any enrichment, there's a good chance they might be meaningless at best and destructive at worst. And like I said before, we can escape in a lot of ways. All those things we mentioned before, music, television, film, theater, they're all forms of escapism in one way or another. And we could easily add to that list things like novels, comics, sports fandom, celebrity worship, and perhaps the most insidiously harmful escape of all of them, substance use. And before we move on, I'd like to, obvi- I'd like to offer an obvious disclaimer. I'm in no way advocating for habitual binge watching or excessive consumption, whether of entertainment media or substances. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that we have all these ways to escape and more. And as part of this series, Paul has challenged us to be critical of the cultural artifacts that we consume. And part of that means taking into account the ways that we escape. So we have to be mindful of the ways in which those escapes affect our lives in times of rest. So naturally, it made sense to me as a music person that we discuss at least one song together, right? But songs are so short, you might be thinking. How critical can we be of a song that lasts maybe four minutes? How much sense can we make of simplistic beats and loops that just repeat over and over? How much weight can we give to lyrics that sometimes seem superficial and vague? Hold on, am I describing a worship song? That's the part where you laugh. I appreciate it, I'll take it. Jokes aside, the music I have in mind is pop music more generally. And when I say popular music, I mean any music that has entered our collective musical lexicon, whether it's Billie Eilish, BTS, Bad Bunny, or Lizzo, all of these things affect our lives. They're everywhere. We hear them when we're shopping at Kohl's, when we're looking for cardigans or whatever. Like, they're just there. And so I will admit that some popular songs enter our minds completely uninvited. We don't want them there. We're looking at you, baby shark. But then there are other songs that we intentionally cling to for one reason or another. Even pop songs can be very meaningful to us. These are the types of songs that I think we have to interrogate. Why have we allowed them to become a part of our life? And how are they enriching it, if they are at all? We have to ask ourselves, are we resting faithfully by listening to this song or this album? Or are we engaging in meaningless and destructive escapism? And many of us often use music itself as a type of escape. But one interesting aspect of music is that it often glorifies some of the negative aspects of escapism with short, catchy sound bites that make it sound really great. And those negative themes crop up in all types of music, country music, pop music, rap music, hip hop. I mean, even opera gets in on the action, right? This is a scene from one of the most famous drinking songs from one of the most performed operas in the world. It's called La Traviata. It's by Giuseppe Verdi, a really famous composer. And here y'all thought opera was stuffy and boring. He's saying, let's drink with joyous abandon. I mean, to me, it sounds like they're about to get dummy lit, as y'all might say. And so that we see that substance use is an escape, and it's not a genre-specific thing. It occurs across all forms of musical expression. So whatever you're into, it's this idea of escape and glorifying escape is there. And so now what I'm about to ask you from the platform might be a Sterling College Chapel first. I can't know for sure. But here goes. How many of you are familiar with an artist named Kendrick Lamar? A couple of you, great. And his song, Swimming Pools. A few more. 
and I'm excited to introduce the rest of you if you don't know him. <laughs> and if I'm being honest, Swimming Pools was the very first song I thought of when I was asked to examine what the Bible has to tell us about escapism in our lives, truly. And to address a not-so-small elephant in the room, like, yes, you may have noticed, I'm a white guy. Um, I'm a worship leader who works at a Christian school and a church. Uh, I'm a huge nerd who loves Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and NPR and podcasts. And so because of that, you might think, this dude does not seem like he's a big hip-hop fan. And I have something to tell you. You would have assumed correctly. But I do make a point to listen widely, and Kendrick Lamar is an artist whose work I really appreciate. I return to his albums frequently because they reward repeated listening. And in case you're wondering, it's not just me who has found Kendrick's work worthy of appreciation and intense study. There is a growing body of academic scholarship, not to mention critical work on his, on his musical output, on his musical output by people who are a lot smarter than me and who listen to a lot more hip-hop. So both scholars and cultural critics are writing a lot about Kendrick Lamar's work. And by scholarship, I don't mean money. I mean scholarship as in music and religion and literature professors are all writing scholarly articles about Kendrick Lamar's work. They're presenting it at conferences. They're writing in scholarly essays. Some of them even teach entire college-level courses that focus on one or more of his albums. And it probably goes without saying that the language and the content of Kendrick's work is bound to offend some listeners. It's explicit, it's at times graphic, it is gritty, and so it's certainly not for everybody, and I'll admit that off the bat. But I do think it's clear that it's more than worth our time to examine the work of an artist who has become one of the most famous and accomplished rappers of the last decade. And if you don't agree on that last point, I'm not here to argue with you, but just consider that Kendrick has won 13 Grammys already and a Pulitzer Prize. And the thing about that Pulitzer Prize is that he's not only the first rap artist to win a Pulitzer Prize, he's the first artist in any genre besides classical or jazz to do so. So it's a big deal. And I'm sorry, but the comments on that thread are closed. So you may be wondering, how in the world does the musical work of Kendrick Lamar inform our discussion today of escapism? Like I said, to answer that question, I want us to look at Swimming Pools from the album Good Kid, Mad City. And that album chronicles Kendrick's experiences while he's coming of age in his Compton community. As the story, just a little bit of backstory, as the story of Good Kid, Mad City unfolds, it becomes apparent to us as listeners that the appeal of escapism the appeal of escapism was likely really strong for Kendrick and his friends and all those in his community. Throughout the album, Kendrick and his friends are searching for ways to escape the harsh living conditions that Lamar talks about all through the album. And before we move on, I have to say that it pains me that we don't have time to explore all of the social and economic and cultural themes that are represented on this album as a whole. I'm having to gloss over and skip really serious issues like police brutality and gang violence. And those things inform the overlapping narrative of the album. So just know that I'm aware of that, and I'm aware that this story is expansive and layered and complex. And please know that those topics are just as important as the one we're discussing today. In this message, though, I want to extract the most important points that will apply to a broad audience, even while acknowledging the fact that this story is told from a specific point of view and that that matters. And so from that point of view, Kendrick explains the harsh realities that he and his friends attempt to escape through the means of substance use. Cue the song Swimming Pools, 
which happens right in the middle of the album. And in that song, overconsumption is the primary path to escape. And before we dive in to the analysis of this song, let's take a look at the literal meaning of the lyrics in their original context, right? So Kendrick is the narrator. He's setting the scene for this song, and we can hear the internal struggle from the top of the first verse. He says of drinking alcohol, some people like the way it feels. Some people want to kill their sorrows. Some people want to fit in with the popular. That was my problem. So even here, we see three different ways people may use alcohol as a type of escape. To increase pleasure, to decrease pain, to foster superficial relationships with others. And while Kendrick is struggling with the peer pressure he feels, the camera slowly zooms out on this scene, and we see that people at this party are, what was the term we used before? Drinking with joyous abandon. Giuseppe Verdi would be proud of this party, y'all. And so then as the chorus begins, we're zooming back in. Kendrick says somebody taps him on the shoulder and says, person, why you babysitting only two or three shots? I'm going to show you how to turn it up a notch. First, you get a swimming pool full of liquor and you dive in it. A pool full of liquor, then you dive in it. It's a pretty bleak picture to me because a few things here. First, yes, I did create a radio edit of the first word of the chorus. Second, I feel like two or three shots for like one evening party is probably enough. Seems like you don't need much more. Third, filling up a pool of any size with liquor sounds really expensive to me. Too expensive to me. But in seriousness, this scene points to one majorly unhealthy way that we all may try to escape through substance use and abuse. And I know we're an undergrad college community, you're young folks, but we would be naive to think that those issues do not affect young folks, even those who are not of age. And so while I'm not going to make a blanket statement about legal alcohol consumption, I will emphasize that drinking to excess in an effort to kill your sorrows is never a healthy way to escape your reality or to consume alcohol. Okay, let's get back to the second verse. As the second verse begins, we hear from Kendrick's conscience, who says, Open your mind up and listen me, Kendrick. If you do not hear me, then you will be history, Kendrick. I know that you're nauseous right now, and I'm hoping to lead you to victory, Kendrick. So even in the midst of the fun of this party, we see that Kendrick is uncomfortable with his choices. His conscience is telling him, you have to stop. You're becoming ill. And he may be, he may be concerned with the choices of those around him as well. And this is just a quick music nerd thing. If you're listening to this part of the song with headphones, the voice of Kendrick's conscience pans back and forth from left to right, creating this kind of swirling effect, which just emphasizes the nausea that he's feeling. And as a music nerd, that was cool to me. So I thought you should know. But I think it's at this point in the song, as we get through the second verse, that Kendrick begins to set up this idea that this song is not actually meant to glorify alcohol consumption as a means of escape, but rather to critique it. Don't miss that. When we look closely at this song that sounds like it's just a banger you can play at a party, the real message is right underneath the surface. Kendrick is actually critiquing escapism through substance use, not glorifying it. And we hear that idea, that critique, crystallize on the third verse, which is only on the album version. So if you've only heard this song on the radio or whatever, you may not have ever heard this part. But if you have heard it, you might remember that the beat changes completely. 
And Kendrick launches into a monologue about how overconsumption has affected his life and the negative cycle that it has created. To me, that change in the beat represents maybe the next morning. Kendrick is maybe still hung over or feeling ill. And in the cold light of day, he looks around at bottles and plastic cups all over the floor, and he is not pleased with his choices. He's ashamed of them. He's overcome with shame. And so we see exactly where Kendrick's attempt to escape has led him, to a place where he has no other recourse but to just excuse away his actions that he knows are harmful and just succumb to temporary relief that comes from meaningless and destructive escapism. This creates, as he says in the third verse, a new appetite for failure. So as listeners, we're to assume that this new appetite of failure only causes the cycle of destructive escapism to start over. If you're hungry for, if you're hungry for failure, you're going to be caught in that cycle. Swimming pools, like a lot of Kendrick's work, is a harrowing vignette of real life. And so we're left wondering, why would we engage in meaningless escape when we know it's a vicious cycle that often leaves us feeling more hollow and more empty than we were before? Why wouldn't we choose another way to rest, a better way, when we know this is true? And it's at this point in the message where I'm supposed to insert Jesus, right? Y'all know it's coming. But I'm not going to do that yet. Kendrick Lamar is. Well, actually, Maya Angelou is. And in this story of Good Kid, Mad City, the late, great Maya Angelou plays a character. She plays Kendrick's elderly neighbor, And she's a character in this story who leads Kendrick and some of his friends in what we know as the sinner's prayer right at the beginning of the album. If you're familiar with the sinner's prayer, it's the one where you start and you're like, Lord God, I come to you a sinner, et cetera, et cetera. I invite you to come into my life. Amen. That moment that we hear right at the beginning of the whole album is actually a flash forward to the moment in the narrative where Kendrick begins to shed his old lifestyle and embark on a new one. It's a great bit of cinematic foreshadowing that would make Quentin Tarantino give two thumbs up. But before Maya Angelou's character leads the young men in the sinner's prayer, she admonishes them. She says, you young men are dying of thirst. And it's interesting to me that she makes that specific statement. She doesn't know what they were doing the night before. She may assume, but she doesn't know. But we know that earlier in the story, these young men attempted to quench their thirst with alcohol, and it left them feeling empty and hollow. Despite their best efforts, these young men are still dying of thirst. She goes on to ask, do you know what that means? That means you need water, holy water. You need to be baptized with the Spirit of the Lord. So now I'm going to go ahead and bring Jesus into this because this story reminds me so much of another story about Jesus, some water, and an ashamed person. It's a story that's in the Bible in the book of John, and it's a great one. Some of you may be familiar. It's the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. If you're not, a bit of brief background. In that story, we read that Jesus has just finished traveling a long distance, He's thirsty, and so he comes to a local well. He sees a woman there drawing water and initiates a conversation with her, asking if she would draw some water for him to drink because he's thirsty and tired. There's a brief exchange, 
in which Jesus eventually makes this statement. Everyone who drinks the water, he's talking about the well water, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I give them will never be thirsty. The water I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so it's in the midst of this conversation and shortly after that the woman begins to realize who he really is. She begins to understand that Jesus is the Messiah who is offering her a better way to live, a totally different means of escape. The woman realizes that she's dying of thirst, not literally, but spiritually. She has the means to draw her own water from the well that she needs to satisfy her temporary thirst, but she needs holy water to satisfy her spiritual thirst, the water that Jesus is talking about. And to me, this is the same water that Kendrick's elderly neighbor is talking about. Are y'all making that connection with me? So what we witness at the end of the Good Kid Mad City album is ultimately a conversion story, even if it is a little bit unconventional. And it's linked to this idea of holy water that springs up like a well of eternal life, the holy water that his neighbor was telling him about. So speaking of eternal life, let's return to the scene where Kendrick's and, Kendrick and his friends are praying the sinner's prayer. After leading the young men through the whole prayer, Maya Angelou's character says, all right now, remember this day, the start of a new life, your real life. And it's at that very moment that we see Kendrick's character make a commitment to live a better life. It's at that very moment he decides to turn away from meaningless escapism. And it's at that very moment he trades his old life filled with destruction for a new life filled with purpose. He has embraced the start of his new life, his real life. Now, I want to do a little bit more to tie these stories together. The account of the Samaritan woman at the well provides a similar conversion story. When she realized that she had encountered the Messiah, her life changed forever. And it was at that very moment that she rushed back to her town to share the incredible news with everybody in her community. It was at that very moment that she traded her old life filled with shame for a new life filled with the, gr the grace of God and the Spirit of the Lord. She began a new life because she believed Jesus was who he said he was. And so, what about us? Do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do we believe Jesus when he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. After reading that, do we believe that Jesus has the power to rescue us from a life of meaninglessness and destruction? And if we do, we can no longer allow the temptation of escapism to blind us to the grace that we have received through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can no longer be blind to that. Because we know being on this side of the story 
that Jesus did, in fact, lay down his life. He made good on his promise. And as part of that promise, Jesus invites us away from escapism into the full life that only he offers. Jesus invites us away from escapism into the full life that only he offers. To close today, I'd like to share with you a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's seminal work, The Cost of Discipleship. He writes, The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark on discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And like Bonhoeffer says, when Christ invites us to come and die, that death is not a terrible ending, but rather a beautiful beginning of our new life in Jesus Christ. And the new life Jesus offers is an abundant life, an eternal life, a real life. And all we have to do to begin that new life is to accept his invitation. Please pray with me. God, we're so thankful for this time to come together and to study your word. We're thankful for the invitation you offer to new life. And I pray for those today who are perhaps unsure of whether they believe Jesus is who he says he is. I pray that they know Jesus still wants them. That the God of the universe is still chasing after them. That the good shepherd has the power to bring all sheep into his fold. I pray that they hear your voice today, God, so they can respond to your invitation and begin their new life, their real life. God, we love you. And it's in your son's precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.